welcome back to Prologues. I'm your host, Mary. Still no intro this week because I still have not been able to figure out how to mix the audio no matter how many times I stare at the Audacity app on my laptop in confusion and no matter how many YouTube videos I watch. However, fun update for the future of Prologues, I've started pitching to podcast networks. I would really love to get picked up by a network because that would provide me access to an actual editor, like a a sound editor, but also because maybe I could finally get out of my closet. I like where I'm at right now, humble beginnings, you know, but I have high hopes for the future of this podcast and I'm really excited to start pitching. Fingers crossed we get picked up by someone soon. I don't have very many life updates for y'all this week other than the day that this episode is going live is the start of my last week living alone before Matt comes home for good. So it's my last week living alone. On Saturday, I'm going down to Dallas for 10 days. I'm going to be there for the last two home games of the season and also Matt's birthday, actually, Gemini King. And then I'll be coming back up to Arlington, and a few days later, Matthew is coming back up for good because that's the end of the season until next year, and I'm really excited to have him back. The time has... I was going to say the time has flown. In moments, it feels like the time is flying, and then in moments, it feels like I've been living alone forever, and I just can't wait for it to be over. I do think I've made the most of this era in my life, but I can't lie. I'm really excited to have him back. All of my life updates are mental health related, and that's what we're talking about today, so I'm going to save it. Instead, I'll just tell you what I'm working on and what I'm proud of for this week. So this is a weekly segment where I tell you one thing from the past week that I've been trying to work on in my life, and then one thing that I'm proud of myself for. This week, I am proud of myself for going to a wedding by myself. So I attended the wedding of one of Matt and I's friends, and he also happens to be my accountant, but one of our friends... Matt was supposed to come with me, and he was going to come with me up until Thursday of last week where he learned he wasn't actually able to fly home for it. He had to stay and do, you know, team stuff. It is the middle of the season, so I get it. But I was really sad to hear that he wasn't going to be able to attend with me. And I've never attended a wedding by myself, ever, and I wasn't sure if I was going to know anyone. We love the couple that's getting married, and I was really nervous to go by myself, but I did it anyway, and I ended up being so glad that I did. I knew a few more people there than I thought I would. Not very well at all, but I feel like a wedding is a great place to mingle. And y'all know I'm not the best mingler, but I certainly gave it my best shot. And I ended up having a ton of fun last night. And I'm just proud of myself because I feel like a wedding, well, lots of social events in general, but something about a wedding in particular, it feels difficult to go to one by yourself for whatever reason. Something I'm working on this week is my sleep schedule, and this also pertains to today's topic, but I have been struggling to wake up early recently. I've been oversleeping a lot, and I'm not sure why because I don't go to bed that late. I go to bed maybe 11 o'clock every night. I don't feel like that's crazy late or anything. Maybe I need to go to bed earlier because I have been struggling to wake up on time. I feel so groggy in the morning. My energy in general has just been really low. I don't know if it's hormonal. I don't know, my blood sugar. I'm not sure what's going on. My energy levels have been really low and I've been craving sleep so much. And in the mornings, I'm having a hard time getting up. It could also just be depression, which again, we're going to talk about today. Either way, I made a promise to myself at the start of last week that no matter what, no matter how groggy I felt, No matter how dead inside I felt, I was going to force myself to get up early. And I, uh, yeah, it's, I'm working on it. It's not going amazing, I'll tell you that. It's been going a lot better the last three days or so. And I already feel so much better. I don't know what it is. I feel like my sleep has never been right. 
I have dealt with long periods of insomnia since I was 12 or 13. I don't, I'm not in an insomnia period right now. I, instead, I'm in a sleeping too much period. So I don't really know what's going on with me. I would love to do one of those sleep studies, but I don't think I'd be able to fall asleep knowing that I was being observed. And in a sleep study, they monitor your sleep patterns and then they analyze it and tell you what you're doing wrong. But I don't think I could even fall asleep knowing that I'm being judged for how well I'm sleeping. Does that make sense? Okay, because I don't have any life updates, I am going to do my favorite books, shows, movies, podcast, you know, favorite media segment at the start this week. Usually I do this at the very end, but I'm going to tell you right now. So I read two books last week. One was a hit, one was a miss. So I read James Patterson and J.D. Barker's Death of the Black Widow, and I read Morgan Housel's The Psychology of Money. Psychology of Money is a nonfiction. I have not been in a nonfiction mood for a while now, but I went to Barnes & Noble this past week and the nonfiction section was really calling my name. I got four different books, including The Psychology of Money, but this is the first one that I've read. So the miss is Death of the Black Widow. And I will say, when I go into a James Patterson book, I know what I'm getting into, okay? I exclusively read James Patterson on airplanes, at the pool, and at the beach. And I read this one at the pool. It's, it's just the correct vibe for the type of fiction that James Patterson writes. And this is not a dig. This is not shade. It's just entertainment, pure entertainment. This one I didn't like very much. It's basically, it's kind of a murder mystery with serial murders. And I thought the twist ending was super disappointing. And I'm not going to spoil it just in case this is on your must read list. You know that trope that's like, and it was all just a dream. And it's like a cop out, like some really easy fake out ending to a book or a movie that's a total cop out. Well, that's kind of what this is. The plot doesn't actually take place in a dream, but it it's something similar to that. It has the same energy. It's a plot twist that explains the murders that is so disappointing because I think it's just the easy way out. It's, yeah, yeah, mm, I didn't like it very much. However, I really liked the psychology of money. The tagline on the front says, timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness. So this is nonfiction. It's a collection of short stories about the way people view personal finance. And if you've been a longtime listener or audience member of mine, thank you very much. But you'll probably know that I'm more into finance than you might think. I think it's my Leo side because my Leo side wants to spend money. My Leo side likes extravagance and luxury and spending money. And that means you have to have money. So I have always, always, since the moment I got my first job when I was 13 years old, I have been a budgeter, a saver, a planner. And now I'm in my mid-20s I've had about 25 different jobs since then, and I've always just been a really big budget girl. And in my last year or so, I've started investing. I now work with a financial planner, which I would recommend to anyone in their mid-20s. I think there's this misconception that in order to have a financial planner, you have to have wealth, but you really don't. A financial planner is just someone that can help you optimize your savings and your retirement. If you want to start investing, they can help with that too. It's really just someone to ask all of your burning questions to. I mean, I've asked my financial planner everything from how does the stock market work <laughs> to is the economy actually tanking right now to I'm worried that I'm going to save for retirement and then never be able to cash in those benefits to what credit card should I get? I just ask him everything. 
Several of my friends also have financial planners. So it's something I would recommend. You don't have to have a lot of money to have a financial planner or advisor. I think that's a big misconception. I mean, some of them you do. Some financial advisors won't even won't even work with you unless you have a baseline net worth of, you know, a fuck ton of money. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Anyway, the psychology of money has been really helpful for me because I've been resonating with the sections on the people... How do I word this? People presenting the illusion of having wealth by spending money on expensive things to project this facade of wealthiness instead of actually retaining their money and not focusing on appearances. Wealth versus rich. I feel like that's been especially relevant to me because I work in the influencer space and a lot of consumer culture in the influencer space revolves around excessive materialism and luxury goods and flashiness and demonstrating how much money you have. And I have certainly been caught up in that before. I mean, when I really became an influencer for real, when I actually started making money off of it, which was maybe a year, year and a half or so after I started, I felt very caught up in that too. I bought a couple designer handbags because it was very new to me. And I feel like my priorities weren't really in order. Now, to be fair, I still love a designer handbag. But I think about any purchases that I make a lot more now instead of just buying things to have them and to show them off. And that's just a shift I've made in my mindset as I've gotten older and as I've realized how stupid I was before. I feel like I have made stupid financial decisions in the past because I've been thinking more about what image it projects than what it means for my future. And I regret those things a lot, but I am glad that I am learning from them. And this book also talks a lot about greed. And that's something I think about a lot. It's something I try to safeguard against in my own life because I feel like wanting more is a natural part of the human psyche. I feel like it's really easy to just want more and to not be satisfied with what you have and to not even recognize what you have. But something I do for my own mental health practice a lot is I try to practice gratitude. And so reading these chapters on greed has helped me in those reflections. So I really like this book. I think I'm going to read it a couple more times. I feel like it's one of those books where every time I read it, I'll get a few more little nuggets of insight and information. So I love that. Quick disclaimer before we get started. This episode is really about what I do at the end of a depressive episode and how I get out of a funk. I'm not going to share a lot of details about what that's looked like for me over the last several weeks. I do share more intimate details of what my depression and my mania look like in episode two, which is my diagnosis story. But for today's purposes, that's not what this episode is about. And you might be thinking to yourself, you haven't seemed depressed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty high-functioning. I've been told that before. I think being high-functioning is the only reason I was able to graduate college, to be honest. Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing, and sometimes it stops me from recognizing in the moment how bad things are getting. And I just wanted to say that it looks different on everyone, and my experience might not be the same as yours, or it might be, and maybe you can find community with me in that. But today's episode isn't about that. It's about getting out of it. Okay, so... Let's get into this. This is a mental health episode. 
I've been trying to cover a pretty diverse variety of topics in the first several episodes of this show because I'm still finding my footing and I'm still establishing to you guys what I want this podcast to be about. I don't want to box myself down into a niche early on because this is going to be my seventh episode of the show and there are so many different things I'd like to cover and I have been trying to make the first several episodes pretty different so that you know what to expect moving forward. But I am going to do another mental health episode because it's directly relevant to what's going on in my life right now. And that is the fact that on Thursday of this past week, I had a light bulb moment where I realized that I had been in a deep depressive episode for about seven weeks. I literally went back in my calendar and in hindsight could pinpoint when this started and it's been about seven weeks. I'm bipolar, so this happens, you know? I'm no stranger to depressive episodes or manic episodes, and usually when I look back and I realize that I've been in an episode, whether manic or depressive, it's usually a sign that that episode is ending and I'm coming out of it. Coming out of it is typically what gives me the clarity that it was even happening in the first place. I've got a lot of feelings about it this time. Feelings that I don't necessarily have about it every time. So we're going to chat about it. So like I said, I'm bipolar. If you haven't listened to episode two, I talked to you guys about my diagnoses. I'm bipolar and I have OCD. I talked to you about my process of getting diagnosed and my symptoms, my history with mental illness, just some backstory. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, that will provide a lot of helpful contextual information for what I'm going to talk about today. But I've been depressed, you guys. Really depressed looking back. God. (laughs) It's hard to recognize in the moment a lot of time. Even for someone like me who has had a lifetime, not a lifetime, how old am I? Okay, like 13 years of experience being mentally ill. It's hard to recognize in the moment, which can be frustrating because I feel like I should know myself better by now. But your mind isn't always aware in the moment of what's going on. Sometimes it is, but this time... It, it was not. It's weird not recognizing it in the moment. It makes me feel like I don't know myself as well as I want to know myself because how could something like a major depressive episode slip under my nose for seven weeks and I not realize it until the end? It makes me almost feel a little detached from my body, my sense of self, my soul even, because again, how, how did I not realize? How did I not recognize it's not like this is the first time this has happened. So why didn't I know what was going on? Why didn't I recognize my symptoms sooner? I don't know. Let's 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 get into it. So I tend to crash after big moments, big up moments. Um, even if I wasn't manic, if I go through a period of life that's high intensity and high energy, it's not uncommon for me to crash after that. And my wedding was a really big, high intensity, high energy, high emotion event in my life that had a lot of buildup. You know, Matt and I planned our wedding for about a year and a half, but then the, I would say four to five months beforehand, things were really revving up. You're making all the big decisions. You're finalizing travel for your friends and family. You're picking up your dress. You're making your reception playlist to give to the DJ. You're, you know, you're doing all the things. And wedding planning took a lot of my mental energy for a really long time. And I'd like to do an entire episode about what the wedding planning was like for me. I think a lot of brides have more anxiety and more stress surrounding wedding planning than 
popular culture really talks about. We talk about weddings as if it's like the happiest day of your entire life and it's all beautiful and amazing. And I'll be honest, my wedding day was the happiest day of my entire life and I'm not bullshitting you. It really was the best day ever. But leading up to it, I had a lot of anxiety and stress and I'd like to do a whole episode on it. Anyway, the wedding was huge, not in terms of size, but in terms of significance and the expectations placed on it and the emotions, just so emotional for so long. And one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is that happy emotions and positive emotions, if they're really big and intense, can take it out of me just as hard as being sad can, which is weird, but it's just true. I feel the most comfortable when I'm in a sort of calm, middle ground homeostasis and to go either too far up or too far down exhausts me. And after the wedding, Matt immediately, and when I say immediately, I mean like 36 hours afterwards, 36 hours after our wedding, Matt had to be in Dallas. And so I went from months leading up to the wedding, you, you, everything is so relationship focused. It's all about you as a couple. You're doing everything together. Everything is about love. It's amazing. And then the wedding day really was one of the best days, if not the best day of my entire life. And then 36 hours later, Matt was in Dallas. I was living alone. We were separated. I was living alone for the first time since I had moved in with him. And it was a huge change. And change is a humongous trigger for me. And I crashed. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but looking back, I can see it so clearly. I started crashing, and seven weeks ago, I think I entered a full-blown depressive episode. You would think that it would make me feel better realizing that the last almost two months for me have been so depressed. You'd think it would make me feel better because I've been struggling a lot with my energy, my productivity, my self-perceived laziness. And now that I know that I was depressed, maybe I still am. I think I'm coming out of it now, but I think I'm still a little depressed. You'd think it'd make me feel better because I could say to myself, okay, all of those mental blocks and the task paralysis and the ennui and the struggling to get simple tasks done, okay, that was all symptoms. You'd think I could just focus on that. And sometimes I can, but this time I really can't. And I think that's because deep down... Sometimes I struggle with feeling like my mental illnesses are my flaws. And I know that's not right. It's not right. Logically, I'm completely aware of that. But emotionally, I struggle with feeling like my bipolar and my OCD are not like they're problems, things that are wrong with me. And because of that, sometimes I resent it. And that means when I realize. I've been in a depressive episode like this, I feel like I'm resenting myself a little bit right now because I'm just annoyed that this is my hand in life in general. And that's not fair and it's not true and it's not right. And if one of my friends said this to me or one of you guys said that to me about yourselves, I'd be like, absolutely not. It is not a flaw or a problem. It's just a condition. It is what it is. It's completely morally neutral. It's not good or bad or right or wrong or evil or righteous or anything. It's, it's just the way it is. It's a health condition. And I know that. But for whatever reason, this time, 
I'm resenting myself. Sometimes observing my depressive and manic episodes feels kind of like watching ships sail by in a harbor. Like I notice them, but I don't investigate and I don't get too close. And they're passing thoughts, completely gone from my memory as soon as they're out of sight. Sometimes I just observe the episodes. They come, they go, I move on. (sighs) Not this time. I don't know. Not this time. Not every time and not this time. Clearly, I need to work on more things in therapy if I'm viewing this depressive episode as a problem, as a flaw for myself. So I'm going to investigate that. I'm going to unpack that. I'll let you guys know what happens. But either way, now that I've had this realization, what am I going to do about it? So I have put together a list of things that I tend to turn to when I'm coming out of a depressive episode. Tips for getting out of a funk, getting out of a hole. And these are things, these are tried and true, okay? I've been mentally ill a long fucking time. And these are things that I return to over and over and over again because they actually really do help me. These are actionable, real life pieces of advice that work for me. I hope they work for you. I can't guarantee that, of course everybody's mental health is different, but I am going to share them. I really hope that this is helpful for someone. I want you to hear me out as I'm telling you these things, because some of these are going to sound like cliches. It's going to sound like the same old advice that you hear from every single person and you roll your eyes and you're like, okay, yeah, right. But again, I'm, I'm only telling you things that have literally worked for me. So the first two, just straight off the bat, I have to mention medication and therapy. It's tough because those two things aren't accessible to every single person, but if they are accessible to you, I have no regrets about being on medication and being in therapy. I can also do an entire episode on my medication journey if that's interesting to anybody because it's definitely been a roller coaster of a journey. Undertaking the process of finding the right medication for you can be expensive, exhausting, you can experience symptoms that you wish you'd never heard of before. Sometimes it feels like the trial and error process can't possibly be worth it. I felt all of those emotions um, on, on my journey of finding the right medication combination for me, but I am on a combo that seems to be working pretty well for me right now. I'm on a mood stabilizer, an anti anxiety medication, and I also have a Xanax prescription for stopping panic attacks before they happen in case. I get to that point because, you know, sometimes I do. The anti-anxiety medication also helps manage my OCD symptoms, so two for one. And then I attend weekly therapy sessions with a trauma-informed therapist. I've been in and out of therapy for half of my life. Again, I talk about that in episode two, but I have found a therapist now who I really like and I feel like we're making excellent progress. I frequently come out of my weekly sessions feeling like she's blown my mind and I've made stunning realizations and observations about myself, my patterns, my personality even. I'm learning things about myself that I've never known before and I think that's what a great therapist helps you achieve. Therapists don't fix your problems but they guide you towards realizing how you can help yourself. I think my therapist currently is doing a great job at that, and I really love her. I actually don't have a session this week. She's on vacation, which I love that for her. I am going to miss my session, so I'll just add extra things to my list of what to talk about uh, in two weeks. So anyway, I just have to mention medication and therapy. I'm not saying that medication is right for every single person. I am saying that for me... I tried literally everything you can think of before trying medication, and it has 
changed my life, saved my life, literally saved my life. And keeping up with my meds is one of the most productive things I do for my own mental health and, and going to therapy. Okay. So outside of that, the rest of my tips for getting out of a funk, I dedicate a little bit of time every single night to cleaning my space, whether that is doing the dishes, wiping the counters, organizing toiletries, folding laundry, taking out my trash or recycling, anything. And it doesn't have to be a long time in order for me to feel the benefits from it, I've noticed. And I think this is twofold. One, it just feels better to live in a clean, organized space. And then two, I think it's an act of service I'm doing for myself. It makes me feel loved. It makes me feel like I'm taking care of myself. Acts of service is one of my biggest love languages, and I read this super interesting quote. I'll try to find it. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But I read this really interesting quote that said, the ways that we self-sabotage are the opposite of our love languages. So if your love language is words of affirmation, you might self-sabotage and hurt yourself with really negative self-directed talk. You might berate yourself and have a really nasty internal monologue because that's how you tear yourself down because you respond to love with words of affirmation. And another example they gave is saying if your love language is acts of service, you might have a messy space or you might have a really difficult time getting tasks done because you don't feel like you deserve love or you're worthy of love. So you don't give it to yourself in the way that your own brain recognizes it. That was so life-changing for me. I really stuck with that. It resonated with me so hard. And ever since learning about that, I've been trying to give myself acts of service a little bit every day. And one thing that's working for me is 10, 15, 20 minutes every night just cleaning my space. It's part of my nighttime routine. I actually really look forward to it now. I put in a little audiobook or a podcast and I just kind of lose myself in the narrative and I clean a little bit. And I don't put pressure on myself to deep clean or make the place perfect every single day, but it's, it's 15, 20 minutes a day where I'm doing something for myself. It makes me happy to wake up to a, you know, a clean house. And it also makes me feel good knowing that I'm taking care of myself. So maybe your love language is gift giving. So you deny yourself things that you want, things that you need even. Maybe your love language is gift giving, but you refuse to buy yourself the necessities in life or you refuse to ever get yourself something nice, even if it's accessible to you. Maybe your love language is words of affirmation. And so in order to give yourself love, you need to sit down and write a list of things that you love about yourself, positive things about yourself, about your looks and your personality, your character, the way the, the type of friend you are, the type of daughter or wife you are. Maybe you need to sit down and write nice things about yourself in order to counteract that spew of negative self-talk. Maybe your love language is quality time and you either self-isolate and avoid the people you love, who you enjoy spending time around, or maybe your love language is quality time, but you surround yourself with people who are bad for you, who don't value you, don't appreciate you. Maybe you could direct love towards yourself either by spending alone time taking care of yourself or by getting rid of negative energy in your life, getting rid of toxic friends, um, getting rid of a toxic partner. I would really encourage all of you guys to take a second to reflect on what your love language is and then ask yourself, am I doing the opposite to myself and is it hurting me? Because that really changed my life. 
So my next tip is getting more sunshine. I just feel like humans are little plants, little leaflings. And for me, a big one is sunshine or just fresh air in general. Y'all know I'm a winter girl. I love the winter. And so I don't mind a couple of months without sunshine as long as I'm getting fresh air. But it has been really beautiful weather here in Arlington lately. And so I've been making an effort to not only get up earlier, as I spoke about before, but also to get sunshine ASAP, whether that's just opening up all of the blinds in my house or stepping out on the balcony, running out for an early morning errand. Maybe I grab a smoothie or an iced matcha, you know, something. I'm getting out of the house. I'm getting sunshine on my face and in my eyes. I'm smelling the fresh air. And by fresh air, I mean pollen. And then I have to go home and take a Zyrtec. (laughs) But whatever it may be, getting up earlier and just feeling God, feeling the sun on your face, feeling the wind on your skin, it's very grounding and it helps get it helps get me out of my own head. When I'm outside, I feel like a plant that is blossoming. I recently found this cool park in my area. I don't know how I never knew this place existed, but I drove by it one day and I decided I needed to come back and investigate. It's just this really big park in a wooded area, and it's the closest thing to a forest near me. So I've been going, whether I'm going on a little walk, or one time I just sat on the ground and just thought about stuff for about 35 minutes before I went home. I'm a little plant. I need to be outside. It gets me out of my head. It reminds me that I am tiny and insignificant and just one minuscule little part in this huge, huge universe that is going to go on without me or with me and it doesn't matter what I do. And that's a very comforting feeling to me. It makes me feel good to know that the world will keep on turning no matter what. What am I going to be doing in two or three or five years from now? What kind of person am I? What kind of person do I want to be? None of that matters in the grand scheme of the universe. It matters to me and that makes it important but the world is going to go on whether I figure it out or not. That comforts me. Nothing that I'm worried about right now is going to even matter to me in a year or two years. And that's a lesson I've learned time and time again. There've been so many times in my life where something has happened and it has felt like the end of the world. And I've let it completely consume me, consume my every waking thought. I've woken up in the middle of an anxiety attack from it and I've gone to bed crying because of it. And then a year later, Don't even think about it. Never even think about it anymore. That's the kind of message I need to internalize about my own life. Being outside makes me feel like that. It makes me feel like I can do anything. It makes me feel like I'm just one tiny little cog in the machine of the universe and the end of the world is not on my shoulders. That's what it makes me feel like and it really helps. Going along with the nature theme, I keep fresh flowers in my house. This boosts my mood so significantly. It's crazy. I don't really know how or why or the science behind it, but if I have fresh flowers in my house, I feel better about my life overall. Maybe it's because the type of woman I want to be is the type who keeps fresh flowers in her house. Does that make sense? Like fresh flowers in the house feels like a you have your life together type of thing, even though it's literally a two minute walk to Trader Joe's and it's three dollars for a bouquet of flowers. It doesn't matter. It feels like a grown up thing. And then also I think the bright colors and the smell, it just again, it reminds me that life is out there. Life is beautiful and stop and smell the roses is such a cliche and I know that, but it's cliches are cliche for a reason. It's true. I actually don't keep roses. Right now I have peonies, which are lovely. I like hydrangeas. I really like tulips. Oh, I love tulips. 
I'm very allergic to sunflowers. My ideal flower situation is a vase of white or blue hydrangeas and then a vase with pink or yellow tulips. But I gotta say, I am loving the peonies. And my Trader Joe's has a lot of peonies right now, so I might have to switch it up and get a couple more bouquets of that. The next two are also pretty cliche, and these are really annoying to hear, and I'm sorry. I hate to be the messenger, but I have to say it because it really works. The food I eat and my exercise. Ugh, I know, I know, okay? But one thing I have learned is that when I'm recovering from a a depressive episode, one, you should frame it to yourself as recovery. You should nurture yourself as you would after recovering from the flu or a bad illness because that's basically what it is. Your mental health is just your health. It has a different social connotation. There's a different stigma attached. But recovering from a depressive episode should be as morally neutral to you as recovering from the flu. And when you recover from the flu, you have to get your nutrients, get your liquids, get your sleep, and then you slowly work back up back to your normal lifestyle, right? You got to get a little movement in your body. That looks different for everybody. But get a little movement, eat your fruits and veggies, get your vitamin C, all of that. And those are two things that really do help. I've been applying that into my life this time around just by making sure I'm getting my fruits and vegetables. And then the second one is exercise, which that's the really annoying one. I absolutely hate that the doctors and scientists are right and that doing a little exercise genuinely makes you feel better mentally. I have had a super long up and down relationship with exercise, mainly because I don't, I've never really liked it before. I don't like the sensation of sweating. Sweating makes my skin crawl and that's another reason why I don't really love summer. Sweating makes me so physically uncomfortable. The second I feel a prickle of sweat on my skin, I feel like my skin starts itching and I feel so uncomfortable. And then, I mean, working out is hard. Like, it doesn't feel good in the moment. It feels good afterwards, but it's hard. (laughs) And so, in the past, I really haven't enjoyed working out. I've always done it. Like, I've always been pretty consistent with getting movement. Sometimes that's, you know running. I ran a lot as a teenager. Sometimes it's walking. I did strength training for a long time um, in 2020 and 2021. Then I kind of fell off of that for a little while. I was mostly just doing walks. Last year, wait, what was last year? No, 2021 and 2022, I spent a lot of time doing yoga and I really liked that. Right now, I'm kind of doing a mix of everything and I have finally, for the first time ever in my whole life, I have found something that makes working out enjoyable, not just after I'm done, but also as I'm doing it. And that is, for me, working out with a friend. I don't know why I've spent a lifetime working out alone and feeling miserable when working out with a friend makes the entire experience a hundred times better. I have a good friend who I meet up with on Monday mornings and we work out together for about an hour. We do strength training and it starts the week off on such a good foot. And it is fun. We're just chatting and catching up and we're having so much fun talking that by the end of the hour, we're like, oh my God, we just did so many different exercises. Our muscles are exhausted. We feel great. And we just had fun. That's been so good for me. Every time we've done it, I just end up feeling so positive. My body feels good. You know, I feel tired, but in that really good way. And then I feel a little bit revived because I've just had a nice little catch up with a good friend. And doing it on a Monday morning has helped as well because it really just sets the week off on a good foot. 
and it helps me feel energized and like I've already done something really productive. And then my last two are more conceptual tips, but they really help me. The first one is forgiving myself. And this is hard. When I'm depressed, usually I fall behind on my tasks. I am really slow to text my friends and family back. I feel like I don't live up to the expectation I've set for myself. I feel like I let myself down. It's a lot harder to fulfill all of my responsibilities. And like I said, for whatever reason, this time I'm resenting myself for that a lot. But the first step is forgiveness. I have to forgive myself for measures I took to survive when something was really difficult for me. And it's hard. And I'll be honest, I have not forgiven myself yet. I'm still in the beating myself up stage about it. But I know that I need to. I need to forgive myself for not being what I wanted to be in the last seven weeks or so, because that's the only way for me to wipe the slate clean and start fresh and move forward. And the thing is, we're all so self-critical. So probably we think we've done worse than we really have, especially when you're a high-functioning depressed person. Sometimes you can feel like you're going through absolute hell and the people around you don't even notice because you might think you're failing at literally everything, but you're really not. (laughs) And you can't move forward if you're stuck in the past and you can't move on until you forgive yourself. So I'm working on that right now. And then the second one is romanticizing my life. I am a huge, huge fan of romanticizing your life. It doesn't fix my problems by any means, but it helps me so much. Life is so much more beautiful than I allow myself to believe when I'm in the middle of a depressive episode. And there are so many little tiny things every single day that I can take joy in if I choose to. I can find joy anywhere as long as I'm looking for it. And when I'm depressed, I I don't see it all around me, but it is there. And romanticizing my life and gratitude really go hand in hand. So for example, I romanticize my life when I wake up in the morning and I open up my blinds because I like the view from my apartment building. And when I let the sunshine in, I'm getting the sun on my face or I'm stepping out onto the balcony or something. And I look out at my view. I feel gratitude for the place I live. I feel gratitude for how lucky I am to live with my partner, to live with my best friend in an apartment that we really like, that we've made beautiful memories in with our friends and our families. And I look out at a view that I think is really pretty and I just take a second and I pause. I could just open up my blinds and immediately move on with my day, but I open up my blinds and I look out my window and I just think, wow, I'm grateful for the place I'm in in my life. How cool is it that I get to wake up every morning and open my blinds and look out at this view Even though, I mean, the view isn't anything crazy, but I like it. It's really beautiful to me. I look out at a bunch of trees and I just love it. I'm really grateful to be here right now. And that that moment where I pause and I take a second to be present in the moment, that's romanticizing my life. And then maybe I go and I make a morning smoothie or something. And as I'm pulling out the ingredients from my fridge, I'm getting my oat milk and my frozen fruit and my banana and my spinach and my vanilla protein powder. And as I'm pulling out the ingredients, I'm thinking, how cool is it that I'm an adult and I live in this apartment and I'm in charge of my own life and I'm making my own breakfast and I'm going to make myself something so delicious this morning and it's going to start my day off on a beautiful foot. How cool is it that I'm an adult now and I get to do the things that I would have died to do when I was a preteen or a teenager and I was going through shit and I 
hadn't started healing yet and I was desperate to get out from under my parents' roof and desperate to get out of my hometown and all I wanted was to be on my own and make my own decisions and control my own life. How cool is it that I'm an adult now and I get to do that? And you might think that's making, you know, making a smoothie is not that deep. And yeah, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes I just make the smoothie. But sometimes I take a second and think about what it means to be waking up in my apartment, making breakfast for myself, planning out my work for the day, being in charge of my life. That means everything to me once I recognize it, and that's romanticizing my life. I romanticize that walk to the grocery store to get fresh flowers, and when I bring the flowers home and I cut the stems off at an angle and I fill up my vase and I arrange them really prettily and then I put them on my coffee table and I take a bunch of pictures and I send it to my friends and I send it to Matthew and I send it to my mom because I just love having fresh flowers so much, that is romanticizing your life. It's taking joy in the beautiful everyday things that you might breeze by unless you be pre- and this you just decide I'm going to be present and I'm going to think about how cool it is that I get to do this even if it might seem tiny or in- inconsequential to somebody else. I love romanticizing going to the grocery store especially with Matthew because it feels like a date and Matt and I started dating right before COVID so for a long time our only dates were going to get groceries together. We would meet up at the grocery store in the town we lived in at the time with our masks And we would have a long grocery list because you weren't supposed to go to the grocery store very often. So we would only go like once every week and a half or so. And it would be so fun and it would be quality time for us. And it would be literally funny. I don't know how to describe it, but it would just be funny to like pick out produce and cereal and almond milk with someone that you like. And we would flirt. We would flirt in the grocery store aisles because it's what we had at the time. And I love that. And now going to the grocery store, whether it's by myself or with him, it just feels fun. It feels fun to think I'm in charge of all the meals I'm going to cook this week. No one's telling me what to eat. I get to make whatever I want. I get to eat whatever food makes me happy. I get to try new things that I've never tried before. This is going to be so random, but like my family never ate beets growing up because my dad hates beets. So my mom just didn't cook them because dad wouldn't eat them. I romanticized the shit out of going to the grocery store and getting beets and roasting beets and potatoes together to eat one day. I don't know why. It just felt like a big moment for me. And it's okay to take little moments and make them big moments that bring you joy and happiness. And it goes hand in hand with gratitude. And those two things sustain me when nothing else does. And that's what's getting me through this period right now. And I know that's what's going to get me all the way out of this funk. Gratitude and taking joy in small moments. I literally just had to pause this recording and wait for my emotions to calm down because I was tearing up talking to you guys about the joy of going to the grocery store. Like that's how much this means to me. And it might sound stupid and it might sound like I'm making something out of absolutely nothing. I've gone through so many periods of my life of really deep, deep depression. And those small moments sometimes are what keep you going. Sometimes you have to latch on to anything in order to get yourself through another day, in order to survive one more day. And if that's you right now, whatever it might be for you, find that tiny, tiny little moment that's worth hanging on for. Because life is just years of tiny, tiny little moments. And if you spend your whole life waiting for a big moment, they come sometimes, but not that often. And if you spend your whole life waiting for the next big moment, you're going to be dissatisfied and you're going to be sad. But every single day has little moments that you can latch onto that will breathe life back into your soul. 
And that's what I want to encourage you guys to do. Okay, you guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Prologues. I know a lot of y'all listen to this podcast on your Monday morning commute, so if that's you right now, special shout out to you. I hope you have the best day of work ahead. And to everyone listening to this, no matter what time it is or what day it is, I'm sending you love and luck and happiness. And to all of my mentally ill girlies out there, I am in this with you. We're going through this together. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.